everyone. We mentioned back in December that we were guests on a podcast called Running Scared with Coach Christine, and that did unfortunately get delayed due to technical difficulties. So it will now be airing on the 31st of January. We are so excited for y'all to hear it. Back in September, when we launched, we covered the Ken and Barbie killers. And on Christine's show, we're doing a summarized version of the case. If you're a runner or you work out at all, you'll love the show. Let us know if you check it out. Good afternoon. Hello, hello. We're here. We made it. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show. Yep. We're going to do our best today. (laughs) I'm Savannah. I'm Alicia. This is Burden of Proof. All right. We got home really late last night, both of us, because we were hanging out. We went to go see Hamilton, which was awesome. Hamilton. But we're both a little bit dead today because we got home super late. But I'm excited. I am too. Because this is also our first day recording for a couple weeks. Yeah, we've we've not recorded anything since be- over the holidays. Yeah, since before Christmas, and it's the eighth of January. Yeah, I think so. So bear with us. Yeah, while we remember how to do our jobs. Let's say, did we forget to how to do this? A it little sounds bit? like we have <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> All right. So I'm excited about this because, from what I know of it, it's the first televised no you're thinking of the last one we recorded (laughs) okay (laughs) that's why i was like hesitating tell me the answer this is uh the murder of Lori show oh i'm thinking of pamela smart yeah we already did that one yes we did yes we did (laughs) (laughs) we'll give savannah a second to catch up okay hold on i'm gonna sink my brain (laughs) all right well, I'm super excited today to hear about Lori's show. Yes, yes. Poor Lori. Poor Lori. All right. So, crack my knuckles. I don't actually crack my knuckles, but I'm going to pretend. All right. So, we're going to go all the way back to 1991. Oh. The ancient times of 1991. <laughs> Just to give you an idea of, like, where we're at in history. Okay. President Bush had declared a ceasefire to the Gulf War. The first steps were being taken to dissolve the Soviet Union. And Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested. That was, this all happened around the time that Jeffrey Dahmer was caught. Okay, so maybe that's why I haven't heard of it before. Yeah, definitely (laughs) nationwide news was focused on Dahmer at this time. I don't know, cannibals tend to take precedent. Yeah. In the media, anyway. Not in our hearts, but in the media. Yes, for sure. But in the town of East Lampeter, Pennsylvania, lived a typical 16-year-old girl named Lori Show, whose life was about to change drastically. Lori was a well-liked and responsible student at... I'm going to probably butcher this. My apologies to everyone in Pennsylvania. uh, Conestoga Valley High School. She lived with her single mom, Hazel, in a small second-floor condominium, worked at a retail store at a local strip mall. You know, nothing crazy, living a normal 16-year-old life. In July of 1991, 
Lori meets a guy named Lawrence Yunkin. Despite Lawrence being four years her senior, she spent about a week dating him, but abruptly ended the relationship telling her mother that Lawrence had date raped her. Aww. They filed a police report, but held off on pressing charges. Okay, that happens a lot. Yes, it does. However, shortly after, Lori began receiving threatening phone calls from 18-year-old Lisa Michelle Lambert, known as Michelle. Michelle was Lawrence's pregnant, live-in girlfriend and was clearly not happy that they were, quote, I'm quoting myself, they were on a break, you know, like Ross and Rachel. Uh-huh. When he dated Lori. So he literally broke up with Michelle, went out with Lori for like a week or week and a half, and then got back together with Michelle. Okay. And Michelle was not happy. They were on a break. <laughs> yeah. I do. And she admits okay. that they were on a break, yeah. but she was pregnant, so she was being very territorial. Well, I kind of get it. Yeah. So Michelle accused Lori of ruining her and her baby's life. Despite Lori cutting contact with Lawrence and not pressing charges. Really pop. <laughs> Take. Take the wind. A chill pill. She continued to call nonstop until Hazel Show had their phone number changed. It was then that Michelle began stalking Lori. Okay. I'm glad that her mom seems to be doing the right thing by Lori in all of this so far. Yes. She does She does what she can. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that she knew that Lori went out with this guy, like, or how old he was yeah. or whatever. Like, if my 16-year-old said, I'm going on a date with a 20-year-old high school dropout, I would know. <laughs> but I don't know that she knew. She may not have known. And we have discussed this, I think, on the Pamela Smart case that, you know, especially, even in the early 90s, like, Age differences like that didn't... Yeah, it wasn't that big of a deal. Didn't pan out the way it would today. Yeah. So... Absolutely. All right. So Michelle would show up when Lori was out with friends and even go into her place of employment, regularly picking fights and making threats in front of witnesses. Bestie. Yeah. One of the incidents happened while Lori was shopping with her mom... Like, this girl was ballsy. <laughs> she, she was ballsy. She had no fear. Hazel stated that Michelle approached yelling obscenities at Lori and referenced Lori having sex with Lawrence. Hazel told Michelle that Lawrence had raped Lori and they had not yet pressed charges, but if she continued her harassing yeah. Lori, they would. Go off, queen. On November 22nd, 1991, Lori was standing outside of the mall with some friends near one of the friend's vehicle truck. Okay, now, I want to point out, this girl dated Lawrence for a week in July. Yes. It is now November. Yes. Get over it. <laughs> Aren't you pregnant? Should you not be a little bit more focused on your baby? And about, like, yes. keeping your stress levels down and... I don't yeah. know, not stalking a 16-year-old girl. Yeah, you're 18, your boyfriend's 20, and you're stalking this 16-year-old girl that was naive and went out with your loser boyfriend. Like, yeah, for a week, and then ended it. Let it go. 
But she didn't. She approached the group of friends, yelling at Lori, and the fight quickly escalated when Michelle grabbed Lori by the hair, slamming her head into the side of the truck, and then threatened to kill her in front of all of the friends before walking away. Then she just, like, walked away. Yeah. Despite the threats. Wait, okay, I have (laughs) have a question. What did Michelle want Lori to do? Yeah. Why was she stalking? Like, what was the purpose? What was the reason? I'll kind of touch on that. Okay. There's a couple reasons, I think, but the main one that she claims is that it was because she was trying to scare her to not press charges. And I'm like, but she, she didn't press charges. Going to. And then the mother tells you that they will if you continue. But so. the, none of it makes any sense. It does not make sense. Okay. Okay. So despite the threats, they immediately filed a police report about the incident. But police did not start to investigate the claim until December 16th. Okay. And they said that even once they started investigating, they were having trouble locating Michelle. They went to Michelle's parents, and her parents didn't even claim that they didn't have an address for Michelle. Okay. Okay. Lori then found out from some mutual acquaintances that Michelle had tried to recruit them in a plan to kidnap Lori, assault her, tie her up in the middle of town, and cut off her hair. <laughs> Letting that sink in. Oh, God. What is... I, well, I don't... I, hmm. Yeah. Michelle only didn't follow through on the plan because some of the kids she had tried to recruit neglected to show up. Okay. So this she... Is, this is going to sound weird, but this is Pennsylvania? Yes. Okay. A relatively small town yeah. in Pennsylvania. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So, unfortunately, even that, even, like, trying to recruit people and then they no-show did not scare her into stopping. Just three days after the police had started that investigation on the assault incident, December 19th, Hazel Show received a call from someone claiming to be calling on the on behalf of Lori's school guidance counselor. They wanted to schedule a meeting for the next morning at 7 a.m. Hazel didn't know, so And with all the trouble and harassment that Lori had been going through, I'm sure she thought getting that call was... Yeah, something to do with... Something to do with that, or... or, Yes, I'm sure. Or maybe all the stress, her grades slipped a little bit. Yes. That makes perfect sense. Why would she question it? Exactly. So the next morning, Hazel left for the meeting, leaving Lori home alone to get ready for school. Just minutes after Hazel left the condo, there was a knock at the door. No. (laughs) I was going to make sound effects. I'm going to do like old-timey radio shows. The neighbor below the show's condo reported that they had seen Hazel leave and shortly after heard their door slam. And just moments after that, they heard a thud. Oh, not the thud. Based on the crime scene, it appeared there had been a struggle when Lori attempted to run into her bedroom to grab the phone. There was no way Lori could have dialed fast enough. 
in just minutes, the assailant or assailants had stabbed Lori in the back, tied her up, cut off chunks of her hair, slit her throat. Oh, my gosh. And walked out of the condo and through the parking lot, passing witnesses as if nothing happened. Oh, my God. Hazel Show, do you need time to process? I, I do, <laughs> I think. Because that's yeah. way more than necessary. Oh, absolutely. Like, I hope we're going to get into the psychology behind this whole thing because I have some serious questions. There's, like, we would have to be armchair psychologists. Oh. There's not a lot in the research that that I could find that really discusses the full. Yeah. Now, this is a lot of he said, she said. Yeah. Like, the whole case. There, There is evidence, but there's a lot of he said, she said. Well, I think I'm going to go on on a limb and say we know who did it. Well... Yeah, probably. <laughs> but all right. Even to this day, it's he said, she said. <laughs> I think I'm ready so, to hear about the mom again. Okay, Hazel. this is the part I will do my best to get through without crying. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, cry. I'm definitely crying. Oh, I'll, I'll get through it. I can power through. Hazel Show arrived back at home just 25 minutes later. She reported. That she screamed to her neighbor to call 911 and then got a kitchen knife to cut the rope from around Lori's neck. She claimed that Lori was able to whisper, Michelle did it, and I love you, before succumbing to her injuries. I have chills. Oh, my God. Yeah. Here's the weird part for me. This is This rubbed me the wrong way. Despite the police not being able to locate Michelle regarding the stalking and harassment complaints, they managed to track her and Lawrence down at a bowling alley just outside of town that same night. Well, I'm not shocked by that because stalking laws and like the the investigation behind stalking is ding, ding, always, ding. always lackluster. Yes. Never taken seriously. Exactly. So that becomes a thing in this case as well. Mm -hmm. But we'll get there. So they found them with a friend who also happened to be a student at the same high school as Lori, 17-year-old Tabitha Buck. After arresting both Michelle and Lawrence on outstanding warrants, they questioned them about the murder. Both of them immediately implicated Tabitha Buck in the murder. Hmm. Sounds a bit rehearsed. Tabitha was arrested but refused to talk at the advice of her attorney. Lawrence pretty much immediately made a deal with prosecutors for a sentence of just seven years in exchange for his testimony against Michelle and Tabitha. So I'm going to go through like what he claims happened and then we'll get into like what Michelle said. So Lawrence claimed that he took Michelle to Kmart the night before the murder, but waited in the car while she purchased rope and two ski masks. He stated that Michelle woke him early that morning, got dressed in some of his clothes, which he claims wasn't unusual as she was seven months pregnant. And at that time, they couldn't afford maternity clothes, so she would just wear his over bigger stuff. 
He said that he drove her to pick up Tabitha at approximately 6.30 a.m. and then dropped the two of them off along a wooded area that ran next to the show's condominium complex. Lawrence then claimed that he went to McDonald's for breakfast, but he arrived about 10 minutes before opening, so he waited and that it only took him another like five minutes to get his order. So he okay. was there for maybe 15 minutes. He stated that when he arrived back to the wooded area, Michelle and Tabitha weren't there. So he drove around and passed by the spot repeatedly before they showed up. Okay. So he's just basically saying he was the driver. Yes. He okay. said that when he asked Michelle what happened, she said not to worry about it and that she would tell him later if he needed to know. Lawrence went on to tell police that they went back to his and Michelle's house where she and Tabitha took showers and changed. He claimed that Michelle told him at that point that Tabitha and Lori were wrestling and Lori accidentally got stabbed in the back and that she and Tabitha agreed to slit Lori's throat in order to put her out of her misery. So he has knowledge of like the wounds Yes. But he claims that he just knows because Michelle told him. Lawrence admitted that he and Michelle then washed the clothes that they had been wearing and then threw them in the dumpster behind Kmart after taking Tabitha to school. He claimed that Michelle then said she had to get rid of another bag, which they threw in a nearby river and then later retreated returned to the river to get uh, the hoodie sweatshirt that she had been wearing that apparently didn't get put with the rest of the clothes. Okay. That bag that they threw in the river had the um, knife in it. Okay. Initially, Michelle tells police the story that she, Lawrence, and Tabitha had agreed to. So, like, initially, she's kind of concocting some story similar to what Lawrence mm-hmm. had told them, okay? But as she realizes that Lawrence had caved and gave a lot more detail, mm-hmm. she went on to change her story several times. Of course she did. Because doing this with other people, not to say how to get away with murder, but <laughs> are you stupid? There's three of you. Yeah. Well, I mean... I think that's pretty obvious. But yeah. Anyway, detectives finally get her to sign a statement. Okay. And Michelle in the statement admits that it was her idea to go to Lori's condo, but she claims that it was just because she wanted to talk to her. She claimed that Tabitha was the one to knock on the door alone because Hazel Show would recognize her. Okay. Since, obviously, she had been harassing. Once Tabitha went into the condo, Michelle let herself in and found Tabitha and Lori in a physical struggle. Michelle claimed that Tabitha attacked Lori with the knife and she froze because she was so scared. Didn't she just, like, slam her head against the truck? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, can't be that scared. Yes. Despite claiming that Tabitha committed the stabbing, Michelle admitted to a lot that implicated herself as well, though. She admitted that she and Lori had been fighting, 
that she was angry because Lori had supposedly made up rumors about her to create a rift between her and Lawrence. Uh, Bessie, I don't think she cares that much. I'm pretty sure not. (laughs) She confirmed that she made threats to kill Lori, but said that it was only a figure of speech. She also... (laughs) In combined with stalking, not really a figure of speech. That's a threat. Yeah. She also admitted that she was the one who brought the bag containing a knife, rope, ski hats, and sunglasses. However, she had an explanation for all of those items. I was about to say, so you brought the knife but didn't stab her? You're going to love this. You're going to love it. Oh, God. It's fantastic. (laughs) Okay. She said that she and Lawrence had plans to go cut down a Christmas tree later that day. Now, individually, she explained that the ski hats were to keep the wood chips out of their hair. The knife was to cut away the small branches off the base of the tree. The rope was for tying the tree to the car, obviously. And she even pointed out that obviously that's what the rope was for because the rope that she bought had a picture of a guy tying a Christmas tree to the car on the packaging. You know what? (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to give credit where credit is due. No, wait, no. <laughs> okay. She, she was good. Like, those were all, like, kind of silly, but okay. No, but, but, I, but I see where okay. she's thinking she's going to get away with it. Okay. But this is where she falls short. Okay. Because the best explanation of all <laughs> is not that the sunglasses are for protecting their eyes so that chips don't get into them. But she specifically says the sunglasses were to prevent them from getting pink eye. (laughs) (laughs) Do Christmas trees carry pink eye these days? Well, you could get pink eye from a chip going in there and then just get an infection, but like that's so specific. That's too specific. You can't get pink eye. Your eye would be red. Do you think? Yeah, but I'm sure she doesn't understand like conjunctivitis, (laughs) which is (laughs) the actual medical term for pink eye. Yeah. I'm dead that is so funny girl it was going well <laughs> you got him you didn't they know it's you but but like, still i get like, where she's coming from because technically she could say that and what are they gonna do say yeah <laughs> you know so despite <laughs> all of it hold Mich- on i gotta go get my sunglasses so michelle- I don't get pink eye when i go to the beach michelle maintained that it was lawrence and tabitha that had made the plan but that As far as she knew, it never involved murdering Lori. She claimed that it was Lawrence who was nervous about Lori pressing rape charges and that he wanted to, quote, get her in a way that would, quote, keep her mouth shut. She said that they did set up the fake meeting for Hazel to get her out of the house, but that the plan was just to pull Lori outside of the condo and beat her up enough to put her in the hospital. Oh, only enough to put her in the freaking hospital. This is what's pissing me off about this case is that it's pointless. Like, oh, there's never yeah. a good reason for like murder, but this is beyond ridiculous. Yes, absolutely. So Michelle held to this story and has for a long time at this point. She held that she had told Lawrence and Tabitha that that's a stupid plan because Lawrence would get in just as much trouble for that as he would for the rape. Um, and that no, she- he would get in way more trouble for that than he would for the rape. Yeah. Because rape charges are not treated fairly. But yeah, True. 
And she claimed that she didn't want to be involved because here's the other part, the other key factor that may or may not be true. She may just be making this up at this point. Okay. But it would explain why she was acting so crazy and stalking her and harassing her beyond, you know, is that she claimed that she believed Lori was pregnant with Lawrence's kid as well. But why would she think that? I don't know. At this point, wouldn't it be obvious if she had sex with the man in July and then it's November? I'm thinking she would show by then. Well, what do we math? Well, listen, I got pregnant in July. I have an April baby. I got pregnant in July. And by Thanksgiving, people were going, wow, you've gotten really big. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm pretty sure that she would have known. Shown. Most people show by that point. I would say that's fair. Yes. So is that, did she really think that? Why would she think that? Like, who knows? Again, with the psychology on this, I have no idea what this I girl's problem is. Like, I don't know because we're not psychologists. Yeah. She claims that she tried to convince them, don't beat her up. Don't do any of that. I just want to cut off. I don't know what her fascination with this girl's hair is. Okay. It's pretty hair. I Googled her. Lori's hair is pretty? Yeah. She's got cute curly hair. Okay. Well, to me, I lived in that era. So we all look back at that time and go, oh, God, the frizzy perm. (laughs) No, I think it's cute. Like, I feel like in the 90s, that was cute. It was popular to have perms and to do your bangs like that and everything, yes. But now that we're in our 40s, like, we look back and go, what were we thinking? Yeah. Anyway, she seemed to have an obsession with (laughs) Lori's hair and just wanted to humiliate her. I guess that's the only way she felt she could humiliate her. So she claimed that she had put a pair of scissors in that bag with all the Christmas tree items. Oh, to cut off the To cut off her hair. No, she claimed that she had scissors to cut off her hair and that's all they were going to do. But that once they got to the condo, she realized, oh, the scissors weren't there. I don't know what happened to them. And that it was Tabitha who said, that's fine, we can just take the knife and cut off her hair with the knife, as well as use some of it to cut some of the rope and tie her hands and feet. This is horrible. Michelle said that Lawrence suddenly developed a cough when they arrived, so he just dropped them off and went to McDonald's to get a drink. So that's the one thing they do agree on. That he wasn't there. That he, well. Went to McDonald's. That he went to McDonald's. But, okay, Hmm. a cough, really? Yeah. (laughs) I'm sick. I can't go murder her. (laughs) So she claimed that everything went sideways, that it was she who attempted to save Lori from Tabitha. But ultimately, she fled the apartment alone and waited outside until Lawrence came back. And then when he asked her what happened, she told him Tabitha stabbed Lori He ran into the condo, and she heard him yelling some stuff, and then she says that soon after, both he and Tabitha ran out, and he's yelling, Tabby, get her, meaning Michelle, because Michelle was in such shock that she just froze. And so she claims that then they take off running, and she's just running, and she didn't even know, like, where she's running to. She was out of it. But the next thing she knows, they've come to his car 
along the road by the woods. Mm -hmm. Now, her story also contradicts Lawrence's story and that she claims it was he and Tabitha who cleaned and disposed of everything and that Lawrence told her that Tabitha ultimately killed Lori. So there's really only two key things that they agree on, and that is that he went to McDonald's yeah, and that they're both pinning it on Tabitha. Yeah. And so, obviously, all three of them are arrested. Then it's a matter of how do we proceed? Yeah, because how did it actually go down? And who gets what? They did have witnesses. They had witness from McDonald's who said, yes, we saw him here. They had at least three witnesses of neighbors from the condo Mm -hmm. complex who heard and or saw things so they could kind of like make a timeline based on that, coupled with Hazel show when she left, when she came back home. So the trials, such drama. Lisa Michelle Lambert chose to have a bench trial, which did not pan out how she likely expected. So for the listeners, what is a bench trial versus a jury trial versus... Well, you want to explain it? I'll let you explain. I'm doing all the talking. You should explain it. Okay. So basically, I believe she chose a bench trial because a bench trial versus a jury trial. Obviously, most people know what a jury trial is. A bench trial is you're foregoing having a jury. You basically, you're not necessarily saying you're guilty, but you're saying let's just have a judge decide it. Mm-hmm. So you got to convince the judge <laughs> yeah, that you're not guilty and try to win over the judge as far as sentencing goes, like hardcore. The problem with it is that much of her defense relies solely on her own testimony, which contradicted pretty much all the witnesses that they had found. It was basically her word against Lawrence's as to the blood-spattered clothes that were disposed of, because even though they washed them, of course, they get the clothes and they do testing and they find Lori's blood all over them. Obviously. So what it boils down to, though, is Lawrence telling the truth that Michelle had on his clothes or they're his clothes. Or they're his clothes. But I mean, if everybody said that he went to McDonald's, then. Yeah, I just don't know that I kind of wondered if there was any witnesses able to say and I couldn't find that piece for sure. If the witnesses were able to say what he was wearing. Because oh, he went yeah. through the drive through so I'm guessing no. I'm yeah. guessing they were like recognized his face, his truck or car or whatever, yeah. but couldn't I mean, really specifically say, oh, yes, he was wearing these items. But, I mean, it makes sense to me that she would be wearing his clothes because she's seven months pregnant. And, yeah. I mean, that all, I mean, logic. Yes. But here's the thing about the clothes. Yes, that makes perfect sense. I wore my husband's stuff. I waited to get maternity clothes until I absolutely had to. However, there's a pretty big size discrepancy. Michelle isn't very big. And Lawrence was pretty tall. And he, I mean, he was kind of like an athletic looking guy. Yeah. So 
Michelle's defense team brought in what Michelle was wearing when she was arrested that same day for comparison. They did show, of course, that she did not necessarily need to wear that big of clothes, but it still doesn't prove that she wasn't. She still very much could have been like, I don't want my clothes getting ruined. (laughs) Like, I'm going to wear these old clothes of yours. So who knows? The only other evidence she had in her defense was a letter that she had written to Lawrence while they were in prison awaiting trial. The letter was literally written like a questionnaire, numbered and all. In it, she would make statements like, I know very well that you don't feel sad. You were happy. You weren't sad on Friday. And then in that same line, she would then ask, do you remember seeing blank dead? I say blank because when the letters had been presented in trial, the person's name had been crossed out, blacked out, not redacted, like it was done before. They didn't do it for trial. So Lawrence did answer the questions in the letter, and many of them were yes, which sounded especially guilty when responding to the leading before the question. Mm Mm-hmm if that makes sense. Yeah. Meaning, like, if the question had just been asked directly, that may have proven, like, do you remember seeing if the if the person she's referring to is Lori? Do you remember seeing Lori dead? Okay. That would show that he was lying about his story, claiming that he would never went into the condo. Mm-hmm. But it still doesn't prove that he did it. Yeah. Well, that's the goal is reasonable doubt. Exactly. But because there was that leading before each question, it made it seem like he's a lot more guilty. Yeah. So either way, it wasn't definitive proof, like you said, but it could have in some people's minds raised some doubt, but it came down to a he said, she said thing again because... The items crossed out was somebody's name, and Lawrence claimed that the letter had been altered after he answered, that the name was there when he answered, and he says that the name was actually of someone named Tressa, who I don't know who Tressa is. It's somebody who died that they knew, a friend, a family member, whatever. Well, because I had that thought. I'm like, they're going to put somebody else's name there and then just act like it said Lori. Yes. So that's his claim. But expert testimony could show that the words had not been changed, but could not determine, obviously, when they got crossed out. Like, did he cross it out? Did she cross it out? Nobody knows. But the experts on both sides did agree that the name crossed out was Lori, not Tressa. So, expert in what? Yeah. <laughs> handwriting, like we probably handwriting because they they did um talk about like is that Michelle's handwriting? Is that his hand? Yeah. Lawrence's hand- handwriting. So probably that, and they probably also have, you know, even doing handwriting things. I would think that they can somehow test or look or do something to see because if it was crossed out on top, I would think underneath. Because it wasn't crossed out with the same exact pen. 
There was like yeah. multiple pens used on this because it was being passed back and forth I between see what them. You're saying. So my instant thought was like, well, handwriting experts are typically that kind of stuff comes out inconclusive a lot of the time. Yeah. I don't know. But they had an expert. Each defense and prosecution had two different people look at it, and they both said, no, we can tell that underneath the crossing out says Lori. So ultimately, the judge concluded that the letter was not enough to create a reasonable doubt, and Michelle was convicted of first-degree murder and criminal conspiracy. Because okay, despite what the letter says, they had multiple witnesses <laughs> of and months of you stalking and threats. Leaving. And- exactly. Yes. So on July 20th, 1992, she was sentenced to life without parole. Her journey through the appeal system is just as complicated as her claims about what happened. And we'll get into those in a moment. First, I want to quickly go over what the other two Mm -hmm. received. Tabitha Buck continued to stay quiet throughout the investigation and trials. She was tried in October of 1992 and found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life. Now, Tabitha was just 17 years old at the time, so keep that in mind. Evidence was then found that Lawrence Yunkin lied in part of his testimony about Michelle and Tabitha. So the deal with the prosecution for seven years was revoked, and instead he was found guilty of third-degree murder and sentenced to 10 to 20 years. Don't lie. Yes. Well, don't kill anybody, but also don't lie. So Lawrence was released in 2004 after serving 12 years. I'm pretty sure I found him on Facebook, which was interesting. He didn't change his name? Nope. And he looks like the same guy. Like, I mean, obviously older, but I'm pretty sure it's the same guy. Maybe not. So, I mean, don't nobody... Don't go stalk him don't on go Facebook, but... Don't harass him. <laughs> but it was one of the things when I Googled his name that popped up. Tabitha remained in prison as a model inmate until 2019 when she was released due to a change in federal law where the U.S. Supreme Court found life sentences of minors mm-hmm. unconstitutional. I think we covered another case. Like we have The covered, Christmas slayings. Yeah, a couple yeah. like that. I feel like we've done more than one, too, like that. Yeah. So the parole board made it very clear that her release was due to her positive record since incarceration and gave a laundry list of conditions that her release is subject to, including maintaining employment, staying sober, mandatory mental health care, no contact with the victim's family, and no traveling or residing within Lancaster County. Fair. Fortunately for Tabitha, her family, she had actually just moved to Lancaster County, I think, like, that school year, like, the year prior to this. So her family had apparently moved back to Oregon, yeah. where they were originally from. So They're like, this is clearly not the place for us. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I when I first read that, I was like, oh, my God, can you imagine if your family was, like, if she had originally been from there and she had, like, generations of family there, and you get out, but you're like, sorry, I can't come visit you. I can't live there. I can't even travel to see yeah. you. So that that would kind of suck. I mean, I know, like, that's that's the consequence, but still. 
But fortunately for her, her family, I believe, had moved back to Oregon. So she was able to go there. Now, the appeals process for Michelle. I love the appellate court. Don't you? It's a doozy. (laughs) So I did my best to sort through everything. I think I have an understanding of what happened. But if anybody listening (laughs) is more experienced in the appellate process um, or has more insight or corrections for me, like, by all means, reach out to us because this was a lot. First, I'll kind of talk about the general process because the Pennsylvania appeals process is a little different than probably many other states. Okay. So... Like other states, the first step is a post-sentence motion asking for a new trial or a new sentence. Next is the direct appeal that is typically filed to their superior court in which the court evaluates the transcripts from the original trial and hears oral arguments from each side. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky because depending on the complaints made for the appeal... And whether new evidence or witnesses are available, the defendant may then file a Post-Conviction Relief Act petition, which is often presided over by the original trial judge. So what's the difference going to be? That's what's confusing to me. It's basically like a whole nother step that they have opportunity because it like for bigger mistakes or things like that where they're like well we said this but then actually or there was a an error in filing and yeah i think basically it's the difference between you know most of the time when you file those direct appeals it's you're saying the trial court erred whereas this gives you an opportunity it's just a whole special thing of itself where instead of going to a strictly appellate court to say, oh, but we have new evidence, or I found this new witness, or, you know, whatever new stuff you have, you have to actually take it back to the original judge instead. Okay, so this went into play somewhere around the same time that Michelle was convicted. So it gets a little murky as to I I don't know that the way she and her defense attorneys and the mistake that they made, I don't know that it was like an intentional thing. Yeah. I think that it was murky because that post-conviction relief act was, was new. new. And so they just probably missed something there. But essentially, the direct appeals challenges, like I said, are for legal errors made by the trial court, whereas the PCRA typically challenges the effectiveness of the defense counsel, presents new evidence, and or responds to changes in constitutional law. Okay. So, if both of these methods fail, the defendant may then attempt an appeal to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court which, of course, any kind of Supreme Courts, for anybody that doesn't know, they may or may not hear the case as they limit the number of cases they review each year. Once all those state options are exhausted, the defendant may move on to an appeal of questions of federal law in the federal courts all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, again, limits cases. 
Michelle went wrong in that she skipped over at least one of her state options and wrote a handwritten letter of appeal directly to a U.S. district judge. Okay. Now, to the surprise of many, not only did that judge decide to hear the case. What? Yeah. He didn't just determine that there was a federal constitutional error remanding the case for the, with the opportunity for a new trial, but rather he stated that in his opinion, she was, quote, actually innocent and released her from prison. So, what now? <laughs> uh, we're talking about Michelle, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so as long... Mm, I have so many questions. Um, first of all, who are you? <laughs> yeah. I, I can't believe that he heard the case because I feel like, and this is speculation because I'm not an attorney, isn't that a jurisdictional, like, problem? Because it's not his jurisdiction yet. Correct. So how is he even allowed to do it? He, he just did it. <laughs> he just did like, it? Okay. He just did it. Um, okay. Yeah. So- like, I have no idea. Like, everybody, Yeah. So, so, because if if you're not in the legal field, you didn't learn about all of the jurisdiction issues. And it's a big thing that they cover in paralegal school is figuring out who needs to hear the case. Yeah. What, what jurisdiction, meaning like which court? Yes. Even down to what location? Like what? Yeah. It's a whole thing. What county, which judge, which type of court? Yes. Such as not the district attorney. Not federal until you've exhausted all of your state options so i don't know what i couldn't determine was did she just decide to write that letter on her own or did she have counsel at that point and they knew i'm not sure because i could not how find would she have known who to write to yes that's my question because let me tell you if you watch any of the actual <laughs> docu-series um, American Justice that mm-hmm. I I believe they're like on A and E or something. She does not seem like a person who would be able to figure all that out. Well, and jurisdiction issues on their own are kind of hard. Yeah. So you definitely have to take your time and make sure you're. Yeah. And it's it's I feel like with a lot of legal issues or research or writing, it's a muscle you have to flex it. Mm-hmm. And so for people who do it more often, it's pretty quick. But yeah, if you don't, you don't know what you're doing and you've been in prison and you don't have a legal education. Exactly. How did she figure out which judge to write to? It's not like, I mean, I don't know. She may have just Googled it. I don't know what her situation is in prison. Yeah. But I don't know. I know they have law libraries, but I don't know the extent of what's there. I wouldn't yeah. know, basically. I mean, I think that you can access the information. I just don't know that she would have, like, how would she have figured out? Because she does not, I don't know. She does not strike me as somebody who could have figured all that out on her own. But maybe I'm jumping to conclusions. I don't know. You can make an assessment for yourself by watching American Justice. Yes. (laughs) So she actually was out of prison for 10 months. It took that long for, of course, the district attorney or whoever needed to take it back to the state courts and say this was done and this is not okay. 
Um, So 10 months later, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that Michelle had, in fact, not exhausted all her state options. The U.S. district judge who opined her innocence eventually recused himself, and his replacement found no error by the trial court. So it sounds like this guy was just biased for some reason. Yeah, so... The new judge basically says there was error, but nothing that would have changed the outcome. Yeah. And that's what and they're that's looking the for. And that's the difference. Yeah. Yes. And that, that is what they're looking for. So to recap, district judge says there are errors and she's innocent. They go through a whole process. Come to find out, he says, oh, no, I'm not fit to see this case over. So he steps yeah. down. After multiple petitions after, for him to recuse himself. Yes, after people asked. Yes. And then a new judge comes in and says, I don't know what that guy was on, but <laughs> this yes. is fine. So she needs to be in jail. Exactly. So she remanded the case back to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, who then reinstated Michelle's sentence, stating she needed to start the process over again. Yeah, just scrap all of your so. appeals and start over. Back to prison she goes, and she then goes through the appellate process with a multitude of arguments for just about everything you can imagine. We would be here all day. <laughs> That's how appeals are. So I will everything at the wall to see what sticks, which, I mean, tactics. I will just touch on some of them that I found borderline comical or interesting but fairly straightforward so Mm -hmm. that you know i'm not trying to play attorney here so the first of course is lawrence youngkin lied about the letter but that was like why are you appealing that that was like pretty much brought to light in the original trial like the expert said no it says Lori, you know whatever so that was just silly you're just throwing that in just to have a huge list Also, number two, the prosecution knew that Lawrence likely lied in part of his testimony and did what they were required to notify the court during the trial. So during the trial, when they figured out, oh, he's likely lying about certain things, the prosecutor notified the court as they are supposed to. Okay. But her claim in her appeal is, well, they knew he was lying. and. He still testified, and well, they can't stop. Like that's not how it works. Lying, but they can say we don't believe that he's telling the truth. Yes, and they did what they were supposed to. Yeah, they handled it the way they were supposed to. So again, you don't really have. That's not a thing that's going to fly in your appeal. Now, her next claim, I don't really understand because I'm not an attorney. I don't really understand how this can even make it into an appeal, but from everything I read, it did. So she claimed that Lawrence was abusive and coerced her to be a part of the whole thing. This is new information. Now, mind you, this may have come out. It may have been part of her defense in trial, but as I'm reading through this whole big, long appeal document, it kind it's like not mentioned until the actual appeals process. So okay. I kind of feel like it didn't come out until like she yeah. didn't really have this. So she then all of a sudden had witnesses that claimed that Lawrence and Michelle's relationship was volatile and even abusive. However, 
there were also multiple witnesses who testified that Michelle stated on numerous occasions, without Lawrence being present, that she was going to kill Lori and even specifically said she's going to slit her throat. Yeah. So number four was that there's a whole argument about the crime scene photos and it went something like this. Picturing it. Michelle claimed that the phone cord was not wrapped around Lori's foot the way it was in the crime scene photo. I know where this is going. Which you might be thinking, how would she know if the phone cord was wrapped around Lori's foot? After all, she said she left the condo and wasn't present in the final moments. Yeah. That was the first thing my came to mind when I read that. However, upon further reading, it turned out that they're making that claim based on comparing the photos from the crime scene to drawings that one of the officers sketched on scene, and there's a discrepancy there. Okay. So obviously this means that everything is fake, <laughs> and the world is a lie, and there are lizard people, and she's innocent. Something like that, <laughs> yes. So the sketches had inconsistencies with the photos, but were easily explained away by the officer who drew them testifying that he was simply asked to create some rough sketches of the layout of the crime scene and that the drawings are usually not entirely accurate well, because no. they're just doing so before the crime th the photographs are taken because just in case as they're processing stuff yeah. anything gets like drastically changed or something that's yeah. it he couldn't draw the phone cord from that angle give the man a break and literally, the phone cord is there, I believe. It's just, like, not ar around her ankle. It's like the phone is next to her foot, and the phone cord is there. It's just in the drawing, it's not around her ankle. And in the photo, it is. Again, he just couldn't draw it like that. But <laughs> Michelle has another explanation. Okay. Of course she does. She claimed that the police fabricated the photos to discredit her claim that it was Tabitha who struggled with Lori, and that Tabitha threw the phone across the room, because that's what she told police in her statement. Except the problem is she did not say that in her statement. Yeah, I don't remember that. What she said in her statement was, quote, she grabbed the phone from Lori and threw it down, which might end up landing right by her feet. Hmm. Not to mention... And this is why this went nowhere, is that the items around Lori could have easily been moved, bumped, changed by multiple people, including Hazel, who yeah. showed up at home and, like, cut her free from the rope, and the first responders. Also, doesn't change anything. Correct. So number five and last was the post-conviction relief court found that the newly offered expert opinion on Lori's ability to speak or whisper, Michelle did it, could not be considered after discovered evidence. Okay, so which is evidence that existed at the time of the original trial, but was only discovered after the conclusion of the trial because it did not meet the requirements of Pennsylvania law, which states that evidence must, one, have been unavailable at trial, two, as exculpatory, 
meaning it will excuse, justify, or absolve the guilt of the defendant. And three, it would have changed the outcome of the trial. Yeah, it's hearsay. So none of the experts' opinions on the matter were able to establish that Lori's speaking would have been impossible. In fact, the opinion showed that it would have been possible. They can't say she definitely would have been able to, yeah. but they can't say she definitely would not have it's, been able to. Yeah, like it's more likely that she would have been able to than not have been able to. Um, I believe at least one of them said she likely would have been able to. It just, it, she wouldn't be able to speak clearly. Yeah. But she would have been able to whisper or like kind of mutter something. Yeah. And somebody that knows her as well as her mother does very likely would have been able to tell what she was saying. I think I can confidently say that if your throat had been slit, I could understand what you were saying. Well, good. I really hope my throat is never slit. <laughs> we talk enough, but, but... I think we will be fine. <laughs> So other arguments included Brady violations, which is when exculpatory evidence is not disclosed as it should be, a uh, conspiracy that the police officers who were involved in the investigation had previously gang raped her, meaning Michelle, and had destroyed and planted evidence against her specifically, even though she never pressed charges. I mean, I don't know. So that we don't know. I yeah. mean, I'm not saying they didn't do it, but that's something. And I'm definitely not saying that it doesn't happen. Yes. It definitely does. Oh, yes. And unfortunately, it happens to her again. We'll get there in a second. So Michelle ended up appealing all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't believe the U.S. Supreme Court heard her case. Her appeals were exhausted as of 2005, and she is still in prison. But some other final outcomes of everything. In 2007, Michelle sued the corrections department over a claim that she was repeatedly raped and assaulted by a prison guard in 1996. The claim stated that the institution knew about it and did nothing to stop it. Michelle was ultimately awarded $35,000 in settlement, and the guard was sentenced to one and a half to three years in prison. Hmm, only one and a half to three years. Yeah. That sucks, man. In 2016, Michelle wrote a book about the murder in which she not only takes no responsibility for the murder itself, but even blames her actions leading up to the murder on abuse, misunderstandings, and accidents. Now, that's the part that I struggle with, is if she wants to claim or maybe is properly claiming. I mean, if he raped Lori, it's very possible that Lawrence Yunkin was abusive and terrible yeah. in his relationship with her. That's fine. But then she blames some of, according to, I wasn't going to read her book because I no. have no interest in putting money in the hands of somebody. Well, she can't that. make money off of it, but. Oh, well, true. But where's the money Still, going? Where is it going? I don't. Yeah, no, thanks. Oh, I think in some states it goes to the victim family, the victim's family. It may, yes. So that might be okay, but I didn't have time to check, and I just didn't well, want to do that. I just, so. I, no, I get it, because I struggled. I was reading a book that was written by a defense attorney of somebody that I feel is guilty. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't read it. And it was the defense attorney. It wasn't even the, the yeah. person. Yeah. That's tough. So... According to this review of the book, she's saying that 
all her stalking things and phone calls and stuff were misunderstandings and accidents. I'm sorry. No, they weren't. I'm sorry. But multiple witnesses testified to your behavior. You put her head in a truck. Yeah. So that was hard. Just, oh, so she did end up having her baby. Like shortly after going to to prison, she did end up having her baby. Uh, The baby went to, I believe her parents ended up raising the baby, which is, who knows how that turned out. I won't say that her being this way is her parents' fault because I don't believe that. I believe that it's a combination of nature and nurture. So who knows? But whenever possible, I want to end on a positive note. Yes. So here is the positive to come out of this whole ordeal. Hazel Show went on to advocate for tougher anti-stalking laws after Lori's death. Yes. And in 1993, Pennsylvania updated their laws on harassment, stalking, and protective orders, which was fantastic. However, as I was reading through them, they're still bad. (laughs) I felt like they're still minimal like i was reading through them and going oh my god what were they like before this yeah (laughs) so i don't know but at least she got she got that done and that's wonderful that's amazing but yeah there's this whole thing i can't uh, being a mom of teenagers myself like the and that's her only child i believe Lori show was an only child so i just can't well you did a fantastic job covering it Thank you. That's a beast of a of an appeal process to sort through, and I know how yes, hard that is. So I appreciate all of the knowledge that you have bestowed. Why, thank you. Of course. All right. Well, if you have any questions, just let us know, guys, and I'm sure Alicia will be happy to assist. Yes. And um, if you have any input on those appeals process, yeah. by all means, I'm always trying to understand that stuff more and more. Especially so. that weird. That weird thing that Pennsylvania is doing with the yeah the weird step they've got post conviction mm-hmm. stuff yeah absolutely all right well thank you guys for listening Thanks. see you next week see you next time bye bye Thanks for listening, guys. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at burdenofproofpod and email us at burdenofproofpod at gmail.com.